First Peter chapter three. Uh, we'll start in verse eight. Um, since this is my last chance to speak with you, I do want to just thank you all for being here and being a part of this the last couple days. Um, uh, as much as it's an encouragement, I'm sure for you to come and sit with the people that teach. Um, <coughs> I really think that guys like me get the most out of stuff like this. Um, it, it, it's hard to put into words like how neat it is to see a group of young people and older people. Chris keeps doing sure me it's not for uh, younger people only, but he's the only old guy. So, so <laughs> uh, but it really is just, it's neat for you to, to spend your time thinking about God's things and wanting to improve yourself. And I think they call it the recharge weekend and be recharged. I always leave here tired, but internally I'm always like, no, you don't know. But thank you for letting me be a part of that again. So we've been looking at First Peter um, from the standpoint of what he said the book was about. Chapter 5, verse 12, he said that he was exhorting and testifying that this, was the, this is the true grace of God and to stand firm in it. Remember that statement, stand firm in it. Uh, most people nowadays teach grace to be this thing that's like the easiest thing in the world to stand in. You know, God forgives everything, and you don't really have to worry about your life or your responsibilities. You know, grace will cover. And, and that's not how Peter talks at all in this book. The grace, the graces, or the grace of First Peter, is not just about being forgiven. It's about all that comes with being forgiven. That you get to be the children of God. You get to be. It, the living stones built on the chief cornerstone. You get to be the priesthood of God. Um, you get to submit in a world of darkness and difficulty so that you can bring the light of God and show others His way. All of these are great callings, and they're a grace in our life, and they're a gift. So the last couple of chapters, um, really beginning here in the middle of chapter 3 until the end of chapter 5, talks about two more main subjects, suffering and humility. And again, both of those things don't sound like grace, but they are. Um, in fact, look at verse 8 there in chapter 3. My version says, to sum up. Did you say that? To sum up? Some versions say, finally. Is that right? Uh, is that seem weird in the middle of the book? Like, it's chapter 3, we still got to go to chapter 5, and we're going to go done. And he says, finally, it's sort of like a preacher. You know, it's like, <laughs> last point, and then it's like, I thought that was like 20 minutes ago. All right. Um, we got that from Peter. When he says to sum up, he's going to say a lot of things in this section, but I, I want to see if I can synthesize it for you and give you kind of the main thought. Uh, look at chapter 3, verse 14. 3.14 says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. See that phrase? Even if being righteous and living the right way in the world and, and living up to all the callings that Jesus gives us means that it's going to make life hard for you, I want you to remember Peter says that you're really blessed. Don't ever let any of the challenges that come with doing the right thing ever make you feel like you're living a cursed life or a life... That is anything less than uh, filled with God's grace. Jesus talked like that, didn't he? Blessed are you when men persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Uh, so that's the thought, 314. But it comes up again in chapter 4, verse 14. We get 414. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So again, Peter's going to say, if this happens to you in your life, I want you to remember that you're blessed. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. So twice now we've read, if you suffer for doing what's right, if you suffer uh, because of the name of Christ, you are, that's something to rejoice in, something to feel blessed about, and to never be ashamed about. And finally, look at chapter uh, 4, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So if you suffer according to the will of God, not suffering according to your own mistakes and because of your sin, but you suffer because of the will of God, what you're really doing throughout this whole thing is you're entrusting your soul to a faithful creator that he's going to eventually do what's right by that. That's what we learned back in chapter 2 that Jesus did. That he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Jesus didn't call down the angels when he was on the cross. He didn't take vengeance on his own. He essentially gave it all to his father and said, God, you'll work it out in the end. That's the idea of the last part of this text. So let's go back to 1 Peter 3. Let's read a little bit here, starting in verse 8. And we're not going to be able to cover everything, but we'll cover some highlights of this section. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Look again at those couple verses, and I want you to think about how challenging those are. When it says there to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, he's not saying that to be like that with people that are always nice to you. Um, again, it's kind of like that idea of submission. It's, it's almost implied that these things are in the face of difficulty. Um, if you look there in verse 9, we learn that we're talking about people who've been unkind to you. People have been evil to you, they've insulted you, um, and now we're called upon to live harmoniously, sympathetically, and kindly in a world like that. Uh, you know, Peter wasn't the only one who told Christians this was the best way to approach their dark world. Uh, Jesus, of course, taught like that. But let me show you when Paul said something very similar to this. Look at Titus. Titus chapter 3. By the way, does anybody remember where Titus was when Paul wrote this letter to him? Paul wrote Titus, and Titus was in a place. Do you remember where it was? Crete. Crete. Um, Crete, by the way, before Titus lived there, was known for being a terrible place. Um, in fact, the island before, I think a hundred years before this, uh, was written, it had been like infested with pirates. And like, not like, you know, Johnny Depp pirates, like like real pirates who were terrible and would like do all kinds of terrible things. Um, and the Roman actually sort of gotten some control of the island, and there was you know they were trying to make some order out of it. But the island was always known for being a really bad place. Uh, in fact, even today, people still use Cretan as a slander. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Do you guys ever see um, what was the Disney movie with Mike Wazowski and the big guy? 
What's that? Monster. 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 That even themselves called themselves bad. Like back in chapter one, even one said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. They're fat, lazy, uh, and mean, and always lied. And one of them, one day one of them told the truth, and so they wrote it down that that was the way it was. Um, now imagine being a Christian in a place like that. And everywhere you looked, people were lying, and they just served their stomachs, and they weren't good people. It's kind of like going to high school or college or like going to work, you know, where there's just not very much godliness going on around you. What's the plan? What are we going to do? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign only the worst of people. Is that what you're saying? What does it say? To malign no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for people who are considerate for you. Is that what you're saying? No, it says to show every consideration for what? All men. By the way, those couple verses there are two of the most challenging verses, I think, in all of Scripture. When the church is told, look, if you're going to have any influence at all in the dark world that you live in, you're going to have to figure out how to be harmonious. You're going to have to figure out how to think the right way about people, not malign them, not talk about them in ways you shouldn't. I don't care if they're presidents or leaders or politicians. I don't care if they're your enemies. You've got to be peaceable and show every consideration for all men. And there's one reason given. Look at verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Notice the, the pattern is like what we talked about last hour. We were hateful and mean and in darkness, and we were jerks, and we were all of that. But what does it say appeared? The what? The kindness of of God. The kindness of God is always the contrast to human darkness. And what Christians are being called upon here is to follow in Jesus' footsteps. No matter how difficult life gets around you, you be kind. You be harmonious. You be sympathetic. Now, go back to our text, and let me uh, point out something interesting that Peter does here in chapter 3. Notice there in verse 10, there's a quote that Peter pulls out to make his point. He says, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Alright, that's kind of a lengthy quote there. Um, and, and I'm going to ask you to think about with me why this quote's here. Um, 
According to your footnote, where's that from? Where's that quote from? Does anybody have it? Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Um, now, Psalm 34, if you go back and look at that psalm, at the beginning of the psalm, there's like a, a, a superscript sort of inscription there, and it says, this is a psalm that David wrote when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Do you guys remember the story where David one day, um, after he had fled from Saul, he had gone to Achish, king of Gath. Abimelech is a word like Pharaoh, it means a king. Um, and so here he is before this king. And you guys remember that he got really scared. He hadn't been afraid of Goliath. You know, he had been very brave up until this point in his life. But at this point in his life, he was afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So people were recognizing David, and he didn't want the king to know who he was. So when the king came in, do you remember what the Bible says he did? He started drooling down his beard, and he like started scribbling on the walls, and he acted like he was insane. By the way, it was brilliant. Totally worked. Like the king came in and looked at him and said, Who is this madman? I got plenty of crazy guys in my kingdom. Get him out of here. And David like escaped because of that. You know, as brilliant as that was, everything about it was wrong. David really broke his own heart by doing that. He'd always been so brave to say, I'm the anointed of God. I belong to God. I know who I am, and I'm not ashamed. But here in this moment, he was so afraid that he pretended to be somebody else, and he was deceitful. He spoke deceit with his lips. And in Psalm 34, he writes what I believe to be a psalm of repentance and education. And what he was doing was he was saying, don't ever do that, any of you. Any of you who want to serve God, don't ever mess up your own life by being afraid of people and speaking deceit. You you make sure your mouth says what's right. Um, because there are worse things that can happen to you than somebody harming you. And that's you harming yourself. That was Psalm 34. But now Peter is the one who's quoting it. Do you think Peter identified with that story of David at all? I think Peter knew what it felt like to at one point be very brave and not be ashamed, <coughs> but then find himself in a situation where his lips begin to speak deceit and begin to pretend to be crazy and curse and swear and deny that he knew the Lord. Do you remember that? Peter went through the same thing. And it was that soldier's fire with that little girl, Remember? Earlier in, in that, that same evening, he'd taken a sword out and like tried to chop off the guy's head and missed and cut off his ear about this. And then later he found himself around a fire and he just ended up denying the Lord, just like David had done. And now you've got Peter quoting David to all the Christians and essentially saying, <laughs> The world you live in is going to be very scary. The people around you are not going to always treat you right. You're going to find some times in your life where you're so afraid that you're not going to want to admit who you are and you're going to want to pretend to be somebody else, but don't do it. You'll ruin your life if you do it. Now look at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? That's a great question. Think about it for a minute. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Let's go back to the story of David. 
David standing before Achish, king of Gath? And what if I came up and whispered in David's ear as a king? Who is there to harm me if he proves jealous for what is good? David would look at me and point at Achish and be like, that guy. That guy could harm me. Like he could chop off my head. Right? Except the question isn't meant to say, is there such a thing as somebody who can harm me? That's not the point. Because let's say that Achish had took out a sword and chopped off David's head. And David appeared before God in that moment. Do you think God would say, David, I'm so disappointed in you? Or do you think he would smile and say, David, well done? You know, you didn't fear the one who could destroy the body. You feared me who could throw both body and soul into hell. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Let's be, let's go to Peter, you know, the soldier's fire. And the little girl asks him, and we whisper in Peter's ear, Peter, who can harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And he doesn't point at the little girl, he points at the Roman soldiers and Jesus on the cross and he's like, I can do that there. That's a really good question, isn't it? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? David, by the way, wrote two psalms on that occasion. Psalm 34. Does anybody remember what the other psalm was? Psalm 56. Actually, look at this real quick. Look at Psalm 56. Because this verse that we just read seems like, an, uh, almost like a quotation from this psalm. Psalm 56. By the way, I really like verse um, 8 in this psalm. You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You guys like that? You know, David had been through a lot before he ended up making this mistake. But what he finally realized after he had done it is God had been paying attention the whole time. That every time David had a hard time and a hard day and tears had been cried, um, God was saving his tears in a bottle. He was writing the stories in the book about David's faithfulness. Um, but David forgot that God was paying attention. That the eyes of the Lord were on David, like Peter says there in chapter 3. But look at verse 11. Verse 11. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? This was what David finally learned, and Peter finally learned. Is that all the times they've been afraid of people, and the people's, you know, slander about them, or even their threats against them. They just, they're just, when it was all said and done, there wasn't anything that anyone could do to them. Except maybe take their life from them. But that wouldn't matter if you were a Christian. So go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, and let me show you a text that I sometimes think we don't understand the way that Peter meant it. Um, in this context. Look here now in verse um, 13 again. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Now look at the instruction of verse 14. What are you instructed not to do? Do not fear their intimidation, right? And do not be what? What's the, what's the instruction? Don't be troubled. Have you seen any Christians these days being a little bit fearful of the intimidation of our culture? Have you seen that? 
Have you seen any Christians being troubled by it? I have. <laughs> by the way, I've, I've been guilty of it. Like when things have been tough, and I watch the news and I hear about what's happening, and I'm like, oh no, I'm a little bit troubled. I'm like kind of afraid. I'm a little bit intimidated by what's happening. I'm violating this verse because he says, don't do that. But I want to show you a text that we sometimes use out of context. Look at the next verse. Verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which they slander those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. We're going to get at verse 15. My version has the word but. Does yours have but there? It's do not be afraid, do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Let me ask you something. What have you sanctified as Lord in your heart? Like what have you set apart and on the throne of you, your heart have made it the most important thing? You know what this text actually teaches? is that if I'm afraid, or if I'm troubled, do you know who's on the throne of my life, or my heart? That person that I'm afraid of. That's what I'm afraid of. That's my king. That's my power. I've decided that they're the most important thing. The reputation that I might lose in my school, the freedoms I might lose in my country, I have elevated that threat, that powerful being, whoever that is or whoever they are, and I put them on the throne of my heart. And now I'm bowing before them and cowering before them. But the text actually says, in order to avoid being troubled and avoid being afraid of their intimidation, you don't make them important. You make Christ important. And then you just be ready, because they're going to come. And when they come and they say, why are you afraid of me? You smile and you say, because you're not my king. I respect you, I honor you, I obey you, but there's somebody above you. And I'll tell you all about the hope that I have. Uh, I'll be gentle, I'll be reverent, but Christ is the Lord of my heart. By the way, guys, when I finally figured out that's what this text was teaching, I was very disappointed with myself uh, in my younger years. I was so afraid as a teenager, and I was actually less afraid than some that I knew, but I was so afraid sometimes to let people really know who I was. You know, I, I let people's intimidation trouble me. I was afraid of being the guy who <laughs> up in my biology class. I was, there were things about that, that that really challenged me. But when I finally saw that what was going on in this text was, that meant, that proved, that I had a different master. I had a different king. I was very disappointed in myself. And by the way, you want a parallel passage to this? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus was in the Sermon on the Mount and he said, no one can serve two, what? Masters. For you, you will either hold the one and despise the other or hate the one and love the other. Remember that thing? Remember what he said right after that? I mean, we always read that and then we kind of disassociate it with the next couple verses. Right after he said, no one can serve two masters, he said, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life. Do you know if you spend your life worrying, 
being troubled. You know what it proves? It proves you serve a different master than God. You're an idolater. Somebody else is your king. Something else is your king. Jesus taught it. Peter taught it. And oh, it's a challenging thing. It really is. Uh, But it's something I want you to challenge yourself with and think about. Because this really is the greatest suffering that you'll have in your life, is trying to figure this thing out. Now, let's read a little bit more here um, in verse 17. Verse 17. For it is better, if God will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, and that his eight persons were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, I'll be honest with you guys, this is the hardest part of First Peter for me. Uh, whatever it is that Peter's talking about with Jesus here, uh, going and proclaiming something in the spiritual realm, making proclamations to the spirits in prison... Um, I have opinions about that, but they're just that. They're opinions, and there's different opinions about what this means. Um, I'll give you just briefly my, my best take on it. I think the idea of what's being said here is, when Jesus died and conquered and overcame the world, and, and when God was making him Lord of all things, like Peter said in Acts 2, God has made him Lord in Christ. That the proclamation here that was made in the spiritual realm has something to do with the end of verse 22, it was the subjecting the angels and authorities and powers to him. It was like it was sort of like saying, you know, all of you that misunderstood who I was and what I was doing, I want to proclaim to you that I really am the Lord. I really am the King. And this proclamation was made in the spiritual realm. I think that's the idea of this text. But that's not really... Peter is kind of giving us an aside there. That's not the main point of this. What is the main point of this? Go back to verse 18. Look at verse 18. Christ also died for sins once for all, so that he might, uh, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And notice what he says there about Christ. Christ died to sin. Why did he die to sin? So that he could bring us to his Father. And, and he was just, and we were unjust, but his whole goal was to bring us unjust people to God. How did he do it? He died to sin. Now look at the phrase at the end of that verse, verse 18. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So his body died, but his spirit lived. Peter, why are you telling us that? Go to chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ also has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. 
for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Stop there, if you would. Back in verse 18 of chapter 3, it says, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You know, look at 4, 1 through 6 again, and you know what's really being said there? The goal for us in our life is to put to death the flesh and be made alive in the spirit. So just like Christ suffered and died to sin, that one time his flesh died, but he lived in the spirit, you guys too, you guys too, arm yourself with the same purpose, like Christ did, to get sin out of your life, to put to death the flesh, so that you can be made alive in the spirit. With the same result, you'll have an impact on the people around you, just like he did. Now, Notice in verse 1 of this chapter 4. When it says, Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same purpose. Most of the time in the book of 1 Peter, suffering is external from other people toward us. Um, they malign us, they slander us, they say things about us. That's, that's the primary suffering in the book. That's not what he's talking about here. Look again at verse 1. Verse 1 is a kind of suffering that we are told to arm ourselves with. Like it's something we personally take up. It doesn't just happen to us. It's voluntary. It's sort of like when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Nobody's going to put you on a cross. That's not the idea. You're to take it up. This suffering that Peter talks about right here is the suffering of getting out of sin. And I'll be honest with you, it's one of the most difficult sufferings that a Christian goes through. Think about people you know. They live their life like this. Carousing, drunkenness, drinking parties, uh, orgies. I mean, whatever they wanted to do in their life, they just did it. They wanted to drink, they drank. They wanted to sleep around, they slept around. They just lived whatever life they wanted to live. And then they became a Christian. And they knew they had to get rid of it in their life. Anybody ever worked with somebody like that? They will cry and wrestle and they'll say, this is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. That's right. The suffering that you have to go through to get sin out of your life is one of the most difficult things. And you know what's almost terrible about it? Once you suffer through that, then look at verse 4. Then you have to suffer through the people maligning you for it. You know, some people would say, God would never expect this from us. You know, God's grace means I don't have to really change my life. I don't have to deal with people's nonsense. But Peter says, no, the grace of God in your life means you get yourself out of sin. You live a different life. And man, it's going to hurt. It's going to be so hard for you. But arm yourself with this purpose. Christ did it. And then... People are going to make fun of you about it, and they're going to malign you, and they're going to say all kinds of evil against you about it. And some people are going to be like, well, that's too much for me. How many Christians have you seen give up because of those two kinds of suffering? It's too hard to get sent out of my life, I give up. It's too hard to deal with people's like attitudes and maligning and persecution, I give up. But the person who understands the grace of God, 
is motivated for a different reason. What is it? Look at verse uh, 5 again. I want to ask you honestly, why do you think Peter tells us this? In verse 5 when he says, but they will give account to him who's ready to judge. Is Peter telling you that so that you can say, well, good, because man, I'm tired of these people. They've been making life so hard on me for so long, I can't wait till God finally looks at them in the face and makes them give account. Do you think that's why Peter's telling us that is to comfort us? I'm going to suggest he's telling us this so that we can have compassion on them. You know, when Jesus was on the cross and everybody was mistreating him, do you remember what his prayer was? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand what's going on. And I know one day, God, they're going to have to stand before you in judgment. And I really don't want them to have to answer for this. What's, what's interesting about this phrase here, they will give account to him, Go back to chapter 4 and look at verse 15. Or sorry, 3.15. Back to chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to what? Make a defense to anyone who asks you. There's two different accounts here. In 3.15, we give an account to them. Why? Because in 4.5, they've got to give an account to God. And what I think Peter's trying to help us understand is, if you really love people, if you really want to show them the grace of God, if you really want them to be saved and not stand before God in judgment and have God rain fire down upon them, then you've got a responsibility. What's your responsibility? Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Get sin out of your life and don't run through the same excess of dissipation with them. You be a different person before them. You bless them instead of curse them. You don't be afraid of them. You with confidence stand before them and lovingly share with them the reason for the hope that's in them. It's challenging, isn't it? Let's keep reading verse um, verse uh, 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who were dead that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaints, as each, uh, as each one has received a special gift. Employ and serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one uh, who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever. <coughs> Amen. And remember I said this section is about the grace of suffering and the grace of humility. I think this is where we start seeing the grace of humility. When he says to you, be hospitable to one another, love one another, and then this great teaching that you find in Romans as well, Romans chapter 12. You be humble enough to do your part in the body of Christ. If you speak, you speak the utterances of God. If you serve, you serve with the strength that God provides. Part of the grace of God in your life is figuring out what grace He gave you to give to others. 
So be humble enough to employ it in service of each other. That's really this section in some ways. Keep going in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. By the way, stop at that verse for just a moment. What's the instruction in verse 12? There's one instruction. Do not what? Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised when you go through stuff that's really hard in your life as a Christian. Alright, how do you think people do it obeying that verse? Think about it for a minute. Somebody becomes a Christian, they go to work, they go to school, they're trying to live their life, and somebody says something mean to them, and they're like, oh, I can't believe they said that. It's like, why can't you believe that? Like, why do people, why do we walk around sometimes in the church, and we're all talking about, like, all the struggles in our life, like, it's surprising. It's not surprising. It's not being surprised. That's just what happens. Like, God's always said that. You remember what the apostles would tell every church they went to in the book of Acts and what they would continually say? Look, the end of the kingdom of God is not it with It's with much suffering that's going to happen. I told you, anybody that wants to live godly is going to suffer persecution. It's going to happen. Don't be surprised. Stop. Stop it. Um, all right, keep going. Verse 13. But to the, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is to not be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Uh, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Go back up there to verse, um, verse uh, 12 again. We're told, don't be surprised. But then look at verse uh, 13. To the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on what? Rejoicing. So here's your options. Be surprised. For when it happens, rejoice. So let's make that the habit of our life. From now on, no matter how difficult it is to get sent out of your life or when somebody mistreats you for being right, don't go... What was that? Like, ah. Go, thanks God. Like, that's cool. Like, I, I am grateful that I get suffer like this. I appreciate that you put me in this place. That's the shift that's got to take place. That only comes with humility, by the way. That you don't mind being somebody who's low like that so that you can glorify God. And no, I want to point out something else. Look at verse, um, 15. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer. <laughs> and then I like that this is thrown in or troublesome meddler. Is there a big difference between a murderer and a troublesome meddler? Would you say, like, somebody who meddles with people's problems? Uh, I personally have never known a Christian who's murdered anybody. I'm not. I know some people have known Christians who murdered people. Um, and so maybe if that murderer is suffering because of that, um, then they're violating this verse. 
Let me tell you something that I've seen in churches. There'll be somebody who will start saying, oh, you know what, everybody's against me, I'm suffering, everybody talks about me, everybody's like being so mean to me. And I'll ask them, like, well, why do you think that's happening? And they'll say, well, I think it's because I just care about everybody. But, and you know what it actually is? Look at the verse again. It's always the troublesome meddler in the congregation. Like, every time. It's the woman who won't stay out of everyone's business. You know, and she's always like, what's going on? She's like, turning everybody up and getting everybody all frantic and like making everybody mad. And then when somebody goes, what are you doing? She's like, oh, they hate me. I'm suffering. And I just care about people. No, you don't. Stop it. You're a troublesome meddler. Cut it out. Mind your own business. Live your own life. That's actually what's going on in this verse. Um, be careful about that in your life. Alright, chapter 5. Chapter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder in the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, the grace, the true grace of being humble, is seen both in leadership, here in the eldership, and for those under the eldership. But the point that's made in the text is everybody clothe yourself with humility toward everybody. Like, everything about the grace of God says, you ought not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Whether you're in a position of leadership or a position of submission. Um, but notice the, the reason given in verse 5. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to understand grace? There's only one way, one way, biblically, to grow in grace. You ever thought about that? Grace is a free gift. How do you grow in a free gift? Well, you keep doing the things that cause the gift to come. And the only thing biblically that says God will give grace to people is if you're humble. If you're not humble, He's opposed to you. If you're humble, He gives you grace. Grow in grace. That's the idea. Now, verse 6. Therefore, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Let's stop there, you I'll make a couple observations here. Go back to verse 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now, one of the things we've been talking about this the last couple uh, nights, or yesterday and today, is no one can be compared to God. Right? Remember, I, I like the imagery of, of Gary's lesson. What does God do with his hands? He like takes the islands and he, like treats them like they're dust. Remember that? Like God can like take the oceans and like splash them in his hands. Pretty mighty hand, right? What does it say to do with God's mighty hand? 
Humble yourself under it. Did any of you have a father who had a mighty hand? I mean, like, you were sort of afraid of it. Like, if he was going to, you know, get home and mom was going to say, like, I'm telling dad, and you're like, hiding under the sink, and like, you know, dad had like a mighty hand. There's something about that in the picture of God. God is not afraid to discipline us. Um, we need to respect his mighty hand. There's something else going on in this text. It says specifically in verse 7 that he cares for you. Because he cares for you, you should cast your what? Anxieties on him. Let me tell you about me and my kids' relationship. Um, as much as I'd like for them to come to me with all of the stuff that they go through, they don't come to me. They go to my mom. They go to their mom. Uh, mom's more kind and gentle and comforting, and she's good at like hugging them and giving them food and all that. <laughs> but like, I, there's part of me that like wishes they would come to me all the time for everything, but they don't. And I, I tried to figure out why. I don't think I'm like a real hard dad, uh, but I am a disciplinary kind of dad. But I have seen something. You know when my kids are really, really, really anxious about something. And something is really troubling them. They'll come talk to me. And I really like that. And one of the reasons I think they do that is they believe that I am strong enough to help them. Like, I've, I've been the dad with the heavy hand. But they know, they know that I care about them. And when they really need something, I mean, it's not just like a boo-boo, it's like a big deal. Like, Dad, I need to talk to you. Did you see that in the text? That's who God is. He's a God who loves us, we got to humble ourselves under His hand, but He cares about us. We need to bring Him our anxieties. Let me show you one other thing I think is important here. You see in verse 8, it says, Be sober and be on the alert. Does your version say that? Be on the alert. Be sober. Have you ever been with somebody that's an alert and sober driver? You guys ever been in a car? And they're very alert and they're very sober, you know? Other people text and other people like listen to the radio. But this this person is sober and alert. They're like driving and looking around. You ever been with that person? You know what some people say to that guy? They say, why are you so nervous? Why are you always so anxious all the time? Look again at verse 7. It says to cast our what? Anxieties on God. But then in verse 8 it tells us to be sober and alert. You know what I learned from that? Alertness and sobriety is not anxiety. Don't mix that up. The Christian who's walking around in their life with circumspect look and understands the devil's everywhere and knows that there can be things that can really get them off track. Somebody who lives their life with that kind of sobriety and alertness is not an anxious person. They're a sober person who's alert. Don't mix the two up. There's a difference, by the way, if you're a soldier and you go out on the field with somebody who's alert and sober and somebody who's anxious. I mean, anybody who's been in the military will tell you, they can tell the difference. There's the guy that's serious and is looking around, and, and nobody would ever say to him, why are you always so nervous? And you're like, yeah, you're lucky I'm here, dude. Just don't say that out loud again. Like, versus the guy that's always you know, no, look, 
Talk to God about your anxieties. But be alert in this life. You see the balance there. Let's finish the text. I like verse 10 more than I even know how to tell you. Um, In fact, I want you to think deeply about verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself establish or perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I love this verse. It's like a comforting verse to every Christian. After you've suffered for a little while, um, Chris, you're older than me by a little bit, like maybe 10 years or more, I don't know. He's suffered longer than I have. But even when he's 80, 90 years old, if he gets there and he dies, you know what the Bible would actually say about his life? He suffered for a little while. Some of you, as Christians, you've suffered for like a couple days now. Uh, it's going to turn into weeks and months and years and then decades. Don't give up. Because <clears throat> look at what this verse says. Look at it again. After you've suffered for a little while, God himself, <coughs> God himself will perfect you. Can you imagine like watching that in heaven? All of us get in line. If there is lines in heaven, I don't know. Um, they don't take any time because it's eternity up there. But like, you're waiting in line, and all that you've been through in your life, you've not reached perfection. You wanted to, but you didn't. You didn't get it all right. You didn't have everything in order. And God never expected that you would. But because you persevered and you made it through, and you didn't give up, Verse 10 says, he will finish it off. I think about some people that I love. And they've wrestled their whole life to get a hold of some stuff. And they fight and they wrestle and they struggle. And they still are always getting it right. But they're not giving up. Like, I wonder what it'll look like. Like, will God touch their forehead and do something like this? In every bit of anxiety they ever struggled with, or anger they ever struggled with, or whatever it was, it goes away. And he says, go on, you're done. Do you guys like that verse? I love it. But it's only giving. It's only giving at the end of the book. After he said, persevere, don't give up, submit to everything, obey God, be his child. And when the end comes, he himself will perfect you. Let's read the last couple verses and then we'll be done. Verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you don't think Peter's been thinking this whole time about how no one can compare to God, how great God is, it's an interesting verse there to say, like, he gets all dominion in this. He is the one. 
Through Sylvanus, a faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you, all who are in, or all who are in Christ. Thank you, guys, for your attention uh, the last couple days. I sure do appreciate you. I hope the book of First Peter, we didn't cover everything and get into everything in depth, but I hope that you see it maybe through the lens you want to see it, and it helps you understand the Bible. I appreciate you and love you. Um, thank you. All right, um, we're going to, we got some lunch. If you want to hang around, we're going to do that out in the garage, probably set up tables or whatever, and you can stay and mingle and maybe play some volleyball and stay as long as you like, as long as you're gone by 4 o'clock. And <laughs> uh, let's have a prayer together and thank God for this weekend and, and for the food that we have and other blessings. And Paul, Our Father in Heaven, we bow before you, thanking you for blessing us with another day, for the opportunity this week we had to take some time out of our lives to focus on you, to focus on how much greater than us you are, in fact, how much greater than everything else that you are. And even in this weekend and the time we've been able to spend, we've only reached the outskirts of your power and your purpose, <coughs> because far beyond what we are ever able to imagine or think of. May you help us to always remember that as we go throughout our lives to sanctify you as our, in our hearts and keep you in the forefront of our minds. And may that change our lives and may that give us the willingness to talk to others, to tell them about what a great and awesome God that we serve. Not so that we are some special thing, but so that people can really and truly see you. We pray you help us to as we leave and as we go back into the world, as we go back into our lives, as we get busier, may we always keep the focus and remember that you should be number one. We pray you help us as we leave, may you keep us safe and give us a safe journey, and may you help us as we serve you. We thank you for loving us, and it's in your Son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.